Greetings, friends, comrades, citizens, proletarians of every persuasion, and homo sapiens everywhere. You are listening to Democracy or Die, a force for authentic democracy, as it was understood by those humans who actually coined the word long ago and far away, not as a swamp of corruption, intrigue, and deceit, but an orderly, impartial, transparent process in which every citizen has an equal voice and money is irrelevant. And I'm your host, instigator, fellow traveler, and collaborator, Paul Rosenfeld, the diminutive and graying Spartacus of the wage slaves, a worker determined to live in an authentic democracy or die trying. And welcome, friends, to our second podcast. Thus far, you've learned that I'm a self-proclaimed democratic messiah, intent on enlisting you in my crusade to overhaul America's political system, muzzling, or at least substantially muffling, the deafening voice of capital. It's a goal which appears comically improbable, as I was last seen wearing an orange jumpsuit and disappearing into a prison cell. However, I am heartened, if not quite inspired, by the example of Adolf Hitler, another house painter like myself, who also did time as a result of his failed political shenanigans. The world viewed him as a joke once, until it didn't. Perhaps there's still time for me. Just to be absolutely clear, National Socialism and Athenian-style democracy, two very different animals. But when you're as beaten down as me, you take your hope wherever you can find it. I also promised to entertain you en route to this goal of political transformation, and I know how we all love it when nice, middle-class white folk end up in jail a seemingly impossible phenomenon like elephants riding trikes or dogs on skateboards. We can hardly believe our eyes. But before I go all orange is the new crack on you, we need to back up and gain a little perspective. You need a little backstory, both personal and intellectual, where the prison narrative may fall flat. So, without further ado, let's dig a little into the past. Chapter 2, By Way of Explanation So, how exactly does a meek, mild-mannered, middle-aged family man end up as a target of the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force? This, presumably, is the question on everyone's mind. It's the curiosity that led you to download this podcast, the dread which torments my faithful wife, and the doubt which nags me to this very day. The majority of respectable lay opinion, as represented by the press and DOJ, holds that I am delusional and probably dangerous. Even now, a year and a half after my breakdown, my long-suffering spouse remains firmly of this former opinion, if not the latter. But three separate psychiatrists have concluded I possess nothing more than a mood disorder. My sense of emotional proportion may be distorted 
but my reason has not been questioned. In my opinion, if no one else's, that emotional balance has been upset by irrefutable facts others choose to ignore. Either my emotions are inappropriate or the reason of the majority is compromised. In other words, you might be as crazy as me if you were really paying attention. Still, I'm willing to admit pathology probably plays a role in my behavior. We live in an unsettled era, this late Anthropocene. Few go unscathed. Minutes ago, geologically speaking, our ancestors lived in the jungle. Then we spread over the planet, learned to farm and built villages and cities. Moments later, we discovered fossil fuels and harnessed them to transform both human society and the planet. We remain, as always, social creatures, but the clan, tribe, village, and extended family have been all but erased by the invisible hand of commerce, and the overwhelming bulk of our time and energy is consumed in isolated, artificial, indoor activities. Of course I'm a little messed up. More immediately, it's possible my parents were distracted by their modest roles in the military-industrial complex, and also that their own childhoods, in the shadow of a world war, did little to prepare them for the task of raising children of their own. I'm certain, however, that they were excellent at their jobs. They did their part, helping to lay the technological foundations of the modern electronic police state. Possibly with little in the way of parenting and no other family or community to pick up the slack, I developed in ways that were unhealthy. Certainly, the suburban public schools did a little to help. These were designed to mold obedient workers and taxpayers, not raise whole humans. Growing up in a social vacuum of sorts and surrounded by a variety of bizarre and unsettling influences, I developed in ways which could not have been predicted. Does any of this sound familiar? Am I really the only one? If I then rebelled against everything and everyone, insisting on making my own way at all costs and great personal expense, is this so shameful? I grew up in the 60s. Nuclear anxiety, rampant militarism, social and political unrest, and looming ecological catastrophe were the prevailing milieu. I am a creature of my environment. That setting was disturbed and so am I. Perhaps my dysfunction is not only predictable, but also appropriate, given this context. My current psychiatrist, a noted authority, concedes that emotions are more a subjective reaction to one's immediate environment than a rational response to the world at large. If you come from a happy home, you may say the world is fine, despite much evidence to the contrary. Lacking such a buffer, the pathologic person may actually hold a more objective view of things. Individuals repeatedly exposed to toxins may not react at first, but eventually most develop symptoms. Which subject has a more accurate view of their environment, symptomatic or asymptomatic? Perhaps 
I have a condition analogous to PTSD. A lifetime's close exposure to the symptoms of a dysfunctional society may have heightened my sensitivity to the social insanity of our culture. And it is undeniably personal. Four decades of wage slavery has left an indelible mark. I can discuss government in academic terms and dismiss as infantile the partisan fury which separates red and blue teams. But I'm angry too. My rage is more reasoned, but no less potent. Details aside, government is about power. Those of us on the losing side, prisoners and proles, hold bitterness in relation to all we've lost. Our youth, health, and freedom, sacrificed on the altar of commerce, we dream of revenge. The terror of the French Revolution may rise yet. I reject pointless violence, but the symbolism of bloodshed on the common still has tremendous appeal. To die well, for me, represented a final victory and ultimate reversal of fortune, true nobility. The aches and injuries of an aging worker, the numbness and fatigue from a hundred thousand hours of mindless toil, and the slights of a hundred moronic managers. A lifetime of abuse takes its toll, and a pyrrhic victory seems not tragic, but sublime. I'd had my first midlife crisis at 40, around the time of 9-11. A decade of groveling at the grave of Horatio Alger had led nowhere. With my various talents, much undervalued, and children already half-grown, I decided it was unbecoming for a man to spend his entire life scavenging coins as Rome burns. Clearly, I wasn't meant to be an entrepreneur. I'd educate myself instead. This was less demeaning. I had no agenda beyond disgruntlement, but neither did I have any specific axe to grind. I do my own plumbing and my own thinking, whether I'm qualified or not. Always have. Ordinarily, my work holds water, but I'll admit things often take longer than I'd like. Having little affinity for any of the known political persuasions, I surveyed the established intellectual landscape with an eye toward improvements. I began with Homer. As a confirmed DIYer, this seemed like the right place to start. Square one on the board game of Western thought. Ten years later, I saw a previously unknown world coming into focus. It appeared to me that most political thought began and ended in ancient Greece and Rome two millennia ago. Selectively unearthed during the Enlightenment, one of the central truths from that era remained buried. Democracy, as originally understood by its founders, was now confounded with republicanism, something else entirely. The phrase democratic election an irrefutable oxymoron, was born in this period, I believe. The Greeks, who invented democracy, did not believe in elections. 
they well knew that elections lead to oligarchy and tyranny. To avoid this, ancient Athens was run by a random, rotating cast of volunteers. They didn't fight over the leadership, they took turns. Sounds terribly civilized, doesn't it? Our allegedly democratic system of government bears little relation to the Athenian model, but was instead largely based on the institutions of medieval England. This is seemingly a dirty secret. It is an 18th century creation which predates all modern understanding of human nature and human rights and received its most obvious inspiration after England from the Roman Empire, possibly the world's first and greatest pyramid scheme. Newer thinking, like Marxism, still seemed firmly rooted in a pre-modern, quasi-scientific view of the world, a coherent, modern, post-Darwinian political consensus scarcely seemed to exist. Political science, so-called, had been driven into a claustrophobic corner where acolytes learned how best to spin elections, not how to manage the welfare of billions of homo sapiens on a heavily armed, high-tech, post-industrial planet. It was, to my mind, as if medicine had ceased advancing in the 17th century and all the best minds were today consumed with the study of leeches. If I presumed to dabble in chemistry or physics without training, this would be pathetic and pretentious. But political science, so-called, remained a hobby for amateurs. Not science, but speculation. To the extent that it was based on hard, bloody experience, I could respect it as empirical. But the theoretical pretensions were largely fanciful, as far as I could see. Machiavelli was far more a scientist than Locke. I felt I had as much business as anyone floating a hypothesis in this environment, so I set about reinventing the wheel with an eye towards biology, not philosophy. Political relations were surely a product of evolution, not speculation. Both forces may have contributed, but the end product, human government, was required to conform with the natural environment. Ecology, not ethics, was the final test of a political system. Agriculture and tool usage had dramatically affected Homo sapiens' relationship to the planet. Political structures evolved to meet the needs of this new situation. Humans are a variety of primate, and like all our relations, except perhaps the gorilla, we have always lived in groups. Competition, both within and between these populations, is as much a fact of life for us as any species. Resources are finite. Reproduction proceeds geometrically. Limits will be established one way or another. The organization of the group for the ends of competition and efficiency was inevitable. I abhor 19th century social Darwinism as much as anyone, but I'm convinced oppression and militarism were the absolutely unavoidable result 
of man's intellectual and technological development. Agriculture promoted job specialization and gave fixed boundaries to the group domain. Arms and military discipline were a key feature of this new lifestyle. The realm would be conquered, defended, and extended at all costs. In the final analysis, it is a Darwinian struggle. Philosophy and law are merely ornament. The state is a form of natural information tech, macro DNA for society. It's the operating system or blueprint for maintaining and extending the group range. Nature has always been cruel. A constitution is only the natural order expressed on parchment, not so much a creative work of philosophy as a practical record of the existing order of relations. Agent Smith was right. Humans are a virus. Recently, with the help of fossil fuels, we mutated into a superbug. Now there's a real possibility we may even kill our host. Every plague has an end. Ultimately, some life is re-established. But as the world's first self-conscious virus, don't we owe it to ourselves to try a little genetic engineering instead? We possess the means to live in balance with our surroundings and with one another. But this would require significant modifications to our political structures. The precise nature of these changes is obviously a matter for debate, but I personally don't believe they'd even have to be that dramatic. Chimps possess 98% of our DNA. A 2% alteration resulted in an entirely novel social structure. Is it reasonable to imagine this structure should be set in stone? Our relationship to the planet has changed radically over the past few centuries. Surely this suggests some modification of our traditional political relationships. My own specific views on this subject are well elaborated elsewhere, but I will not include them here. As a commercial painter, the greatest excitement I ordinarily encounter comes from the application of some coating other than white. So you can imagine how revelations such as these rocked my world. I may even briefly have believed that I, like Moses coming down from the mountain, would share this wisdom with my fellow sufferers and alter history, or her story, if you prefer. People were still inclined to view the internet as a benevolent medium in those days, and I imagined if I sowed the seeds of a new understanding, these ideas might propagate, like a virus even. As someone utterly unfamiliar with social media, perhaps my naivete may be excused. I delicately dipped my mouse into the electronic ether and promptly had my hand ripped off. The internet is not benevolent. Undoubtedly, it has improved access to information and misinformation, but it's done nothing to improve our manners. Now, please don't think me so arrogant or foolish as to imagine that no others have said similar things or that the world was going to beat a path to my door and throw a parade. 
But still, nothing quite prepared me for the intensity of animosity or the depths of indifference which greeted me as I ventured onto the web. A million monkeys connected by keyboards and ethernet cable will not produce sweetness and light. I went exploring in search of a conversation, hoping such a discussion might lead places. What I found was only bile and indifference. Perhaps if I'd had a social network of school chums or co-workers, I might have leveraged this resource and gotten somewhere. But I never had much use for higher education, barely got through high school, and most of my fellow painters have better things to do. Humans may be social creatures, but I personally have never excelled in this area. I represented the lunatic fringe of the lunatic fringe, a person already on the social margin by reason of personality, selling ideas no one had ever heard of before. Social networking only works for people holding a minimum weight of shared culture and belief. The eccentric loner is rarely a revered creature. In the 19th century, de Tocqueville observed how greatly Americans reviled dissent. Little has changed since. It's hard being a heretic, but I had no choice. I forged ahead as best I could. The details are unimportant. Suffice to say, I tried, really tried, to communicate with my fellow creatures in a manner consistent with the ideals of deliberative democracy. Over a period of some years, I made every conceivable effort to initiate a rational public debate on the subject of democratic political reform. Not a communist or idealist of any sort, I only sought a system that might at least be sustainable and perhaps offer the average citizen such as myself, some reasonable share in the spoils of industrial capitalism. A lifetime of wage slavery had left me weary, but I wasn't out for blood or even true social justice. I only sought a modicum of common sense, some acknowledgement that the entrenched system was a failure and improvisation would be required if the Anthropocene were not to be the briefest of all geologic eras. It was a fool's errand, however. No one was listening. Possibly I represented a perfect storm of social dysfunction. On or about 2016, my poverty, frustration, and alienation coincided with the emergence of Donald Trump. The resolution of these highly combustible influences was my plan for suicide on the National Mall. If society had degraded to this abysmal level, I felt I could be excused for taking my leave. Moving to Canada wasn't an option, and besides, running is for yellow-bellied liberal cowards. Surely, it was far more honorable to take a final stand on the enemy's home turf. I had a large amount of life insurance, and an utter unwillingness to continue quietly down the rabbit hole of late Western civilization. I'd leave a record, however modest, for future scholars, perhaps extraterrestrials. 
Yes, the late Anthropocene was a time of mass hysteria and insanity, but there were at least a few humans who refused to go quietly. As an individual of Jewish extraction, I am sensitive to the charge that middle-class Europeans entered the death camps quietly, without protest. I would not passively participate in insanity on this scale. As a footnote to the preceding paragraph, I'd like to add that although I abhor Trump, this doesn't mean I revile his followers, as so many others do. I see Trump not as the Antichrist, but merely as a symptom and symbol of the utter bankruptcy, both moral and intellectual, of the existing system. I see his rise as an emotional response on the part of people who well understand that the status quo is unsustainable, even if they do generally lack a coherent plan for moving beyond it. I respect his followers for recognizing the total failure of the political elite, left, right, and center. So, I put my affairs in order and prepared to depart this veil of tears. You may call me crazy, but this is very much open to debate. The best psychiatric opinion concedes I'm substantially sane. I'd simply had enough. If reason alone was insufficient to provoke a sensible public debate, then I'd lower myself to the occasion and offer up some blood. But only my blood. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a violent person. But there's no denying the elemental power of blood sacrifice. The morbid fascination of the mob is a power far more dependable than mere intellectual curiosity. We respond to spectacle. Few can ignore the gory execution or car crash, so I'd oblige with a ritual self-immolation on the National Mall, an iconic image of sudden death that would compel viewers to stop and think, what led this person to such an extreme act? Then, perhaps they'd even read my manifesto, an internet document indelibly linked to the image of my end. I'd make people read and think whether they wanted to or not. At the very least, I'd die with the comfort of knowing I had really tried. And thus ends episode two. Please forgive me, friends. I promised to entertain, not preach. And yet I've departed my prison cell already and gone off on a lengthy tangent about history and political theory, possibly something even worse than a sermon. John Adams once remarked that he couldn't give his political writing away, much less sell it, and this was a warning I intended to heed. But it seems I can't help myself, and indeed, as more than one person has said, I am apparently my own worst enemy. And so, if you found this episode dreadfully dreary and are preparing to look elsewhere for your entertainment, I issue the following advisory. Episode 3 is much the same, long on lectures and short on prison drama. But if you skip to episode 4, you will, at last, meet a few 
of those colorful characters who made my stay with the federal government so memorable, if not actually enjoyable. And if you can summon the patience to endure a bit more of my wearisome pontification, I swear you will ultimately be rewarded with juicy details about shivs in the shower and large, scary cellies. Scout's honor. But your immediate prospect in episode three is a lengthy rant against the justice system and media, thus placing me in good company with a million other felons. Yes, it's true. We are all innocent. If you don't think you have the stomach for this, you can skip to episode four. I'll think no less of you. Until then, friends.